Welcome to the Carveline Tech Service Podcast, the go-to industrial coatings podcast. Here are your hosts, Jack Walker and Paula Jamis. Welcome to another edition of the Carveline Tech Service Podcast. I'm Jack Walker. With me, as always, is the Director of Technical Service, Paul Wait for it. A Jameis. There we go. We finally came up with a way to, to say it. All right. So we're going to go to an interview here at some point with Doug Sinatera. We're going to talk about oil and gas upstream. But Paul, you have a little story about travel and the Carboline Tech Service podcast. That's right. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, my daughter went on her spring break to go see her grandparents. Everybody's gotten their vaccine shots. Everybody's up to date. And she hasn't seen her grandparents in about a year. She wanted to go see him for spring break. On her way home from that trip, she's flying by herself, coming back, and she's sitting on a plane next to a guy and must have been about the time they landed because she texted me and she asked me, I don't know if I even want to call the guy out and say what paint company he was with, but he was with a different paint company, not Carveline. One of the bigger ones. Right. And one that's kind of stationed out up in the Northeast, not in Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) So she's sitting next to him on the plane and she notices his shirt with these three initials on it. And she texts me. She's like, dad, is this a paint company? And I was like, yes, it is. She's like, okay, doesn't say anything else. A little while later, I get a huge text message from her and then she ends up calling me and says she was sitting next to this guy. And on the way off the plane, she started talking with him a little bit. And turns out he's a generation older than, than we are. And She's talking to him and asks him, do you listen to the Carboline Tech Service podcast? I see you work for this paint company. Do you work for, do you listen to the Carboline Tech Service podcast? And he says, no, no, what's that? And she goes, oh, it's a podcast my dad does. <laughs> so talking with him, pulls out, he pulls out his phone. She helps him subscribe, hit right there, hit subscribe on his phone. We have a new listener. And they ended up chatting the whole way out, gets his life story and what high school he went to and she lives in St. Louis. The natural St. Louis question is always, what high school did you go to? Mm-hmm. Well, for her, it's she's still in it. But she asked him, turns out he went to the same high school as my wife, her mother did. They ended up striking up a nice little conversation as they were walking off the plane. So I want to welcome our new listener. And uh, by all means, if you have anything you want to ask, shoot us an email. You know my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> he he could join the legion legions of reps from that company that harass us at the yearly conventions. Uh, yep. One one member which goes around going podcast every time he, every time he sees us. So yeah, with that we'll uh, we'll quit talking about other companies' antics and we'll go to our interview with Doug Sinatare, our oil and gas market manager. Here you go. All right, we're joined this week again by our oil and gas market manager, Doug Sinatare. Hey, Doug, how's it going? Going well. How are you guys? Doing good. Doing good. We were doing a series with Doug and we started with upstream and we want to move to midstream and downstream. But basically for every sector of the oil and gas space, we are going to do two episodes. We're going to do the first that's an introductory to what that part is. And then we're going to talk a little bit about coatings used within those individual sectors. So last time Doug was on, we talked about oil and gas upstream. Doug, do you wanna give us a quick review of what that is and what that means? Yeah, you bet. So a couple of things to think about. We talked about proven reserves. When it comes to upstream, you're trying to get the hydrocarbons or the gas out of the ground. So, you know, you explore to find where they are, you extract them, pull them out of the ground, and then 
you know, get them ready for further processing. So ultimately that's, that's upstream. That's a, a great analogy for really what we're looking for because we use these phrases and we need to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So we know what part of it that we're talking about, like any other part of the industry, the oil and gas industry, and, and even more particular to the upstream part, what kind of standards do they normally look for? Do they use, do they refer to when they're looking for, you know, coding standards for this part of the market? Yeah. So we touched on it a little bit last time, but one thing, particularly when you look at offshore, which we're going to talk a lot about today is NORSOC. And these are testing and standards, you know, originally developed for the North Sea, but the programs and what you'll see in a coding or coding systems that, that pass these are really the ultimate test. We talked about offshore being kind of the litmus test. But as, as you also may know, NORSOC, you know, they cover 17 or so different areas related to standards of, of offshore, you know, HVAC, uh, safety, uh, lifting systems, all kind of things. But what we're talking about here is surface preparation and coding. And really, that's a great guide. You'll see a lot of references in owner and operator specifications to NORSOC. So that's definitely a guideline and, and kind of a benchmark. And we'll talk about some of those systems today when we get into the, the areas. Another group that is involved is the IOGP. This is the International Association of Oil and Gas Producers. And what they do is they actually work with NORSOC, they work with API and JIP, you know, to provide knowledge and kind of information, good practices, best practices, if you will. One thing that you'll consider with these folks is if you look at offshore and the, the world, not only related to coatings, but even outside of, of that, you know, you've got a, a lot of complexity. There's things that happen all over the world, really. This standard really addresses some procurement issues as well to say, hey, we've done this in this part of the world, this part of that country. How can we kind of normalize that or, or bring it into something pretty consistent? And speaking of normalizing, I know I can see the gears turning in the back of Jack's head. I know the OCD is breaking in his brain that it's the IOGP and they left out the A for the association in their initials. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually hadn't caught that one, but you know, there are other times where I'm like, why do we not use all the letters? <laughs> but, yeah. Well, sorry, Jack, maybe you can write him and, uh, you know, get a little explanation there. That's right. We'll get him on the committee and, and have him help change their name. <laughs> Probably costs an extra, you know, 25 cents for every letter on another shirt or something, you know, so... <laughs> Also, in addition to that, when you consider fireproofing, you've got Lloyd's, DNV, and ABS. They'll, they'll provide certifications for, for fireproofing systems. That's kind of a benchmark for looking at hydrocarbon and jet fire systems. So there's others, but if you look at the upstream offshore area, those are, are predominantly what, what governs. When you look at the onshore part, there's not as much complexity. So really depends on where you are in the world. Sometimes they'll adopt other standards that are related to more of the downstream sector. For sure. So then Doug, when you look at upstream, what are some of the key areas and the some of the coding systems that are used in those key areas? So I'll, I'll get into those, but I did want to bring up a couple of key points relating to that. And these are, you know, before you even select these coding systems that have been tested, there's a, a technical piece like we just discussed. There's a real practical piece too. Uh, I've talked to some construction managers and 
folks that had worked on big offshore projects, for example, as well as some operators. And one thing you have to consider with, with these systems is you're looking at these big construction yards, sometimes module yards, that the shipyards that you're building a lot of the, the big heavy equipment and maybe even fabricating pipes and vessels. You've got to have systems that are, especially your, your multi-code systems that are rapid cure that you can, you know, have excellent productivity with. And one thing that you'll see with the standards too, they address surface preparation. And anytime you prepare a, a test specimen, it's going to be perfect prep. It's going to be ideal, but you really have to make sure that that is covered over and that is managed and quality controlled when you're in these yards or, or off sites building these, these structures with these coding systems. Because these, these systems have to last. You know, we talked about some of the places where you'll see the, the offshore work and it, it's all over the place. So something to keep in mind there. And then again, I mentioned it earlier, but the complexity and, you know, you've got multiple systems, multiple locations that, that these are, you know, these structures are being built. So you got to really think about a, a practical component too. But to your question, let's talk first about fireproofing. You know, what's fireproofed in the, the upstream offshore world? There's a couple key areas we'll talk about. So decks and bulkheads or firewalls, these are fireproof to prevent the passage of heat and smoke, as well as to provide insulation and personnel protection. You've got structural steel that's fireproof. This is to prevent uh, structural collapse, just like the vessels and pipe supports are fireproofed as well. You've got vessels that are fireproof. This is to prevent inventory temps from rising and escalating and to prevent a, a blevy, which is a, a big explosion. And then you've got ESD valves and actuators. Those are fireproof to ensure containment and prevent escalation. So when it comes to the actual systems, in general, you see epoxy intumescent systems. These normally have an epoxy primer, couple, three mils, depending on what product and, and the recommendation there. Uh, you're going to have a a mesh on most of the systems offshore that's a, that's installed, you know, usually mid-depth. And then you'll have a, an optional top coat or sometimes a required top coat for UV stability. And when it comes to thicknesses, this is where we talked earlier about the certifications and the areas. Depending upon the length of time, you'll have a hydrocarbon and or a hydrocarbon and jet fire rating. And so you'll have a, a certificate for those standards, but you, you couple all that together, look at the area, and that determines what your thickness of the epoxy fireproofing is. In general, you're looking at anywhere from 10 to 15, 16 you know, millimeters of material. The other key thing on these fireproofing systems, obviously we're talking about life critical areas. In general too, just from a percentage standpoint, if you looked at a, an offshore structure, the amount of fireproofing material that's applied in, in comparison to other coatings is significant. So again, we talked about those key things about the prep, and this, this is a big part of coating systems in general for these structures. Not so much onshore. When you deal with onshore, you know, in some cases, you're typically gonna deal with a hydrocarbon fire, and in those cases, it's obviously a different location, so you might even see a cementitious product. When you're dealing with onshore, you can run away. Exactly. <laughs> There's not many places to go when you're on an offshore rig. Yeah. Well, you can jump in. Yeah. Yeah. In some cases, to your point, Paul, I mean, it could be that there's really little to no fireproofing put on there because you may at, at, at times not have, you know, many people on site there. They're, yeah. the, the drilling operations are happening. And the thought is if there's an explosion, better off to, 
let it take its course and then rebuild it later. But yeah, good call there. Definitely a distinct difference in what you can do. Yeah. Or you can swim fast. <laughs> All right, guys, I want to talk to you about Phenoline Tank Shield. This lining is designed for the internals of tanks, valves, and pipes. It is good in a wide range of chemical commodities. It's good for potable water. It's good for fuels, oils, all of those services. It is incredibly great for. You get plural component performance out of a single leg product that's huge, and it doesn't have any solvent in it. So that's the Phenoline Tank Shield, guys. You definitely need to check it out. Yeah, so uh, the other thing, when you, when you look at what areas and coated and, and speaking of that, so atmospheric coatings, for example, you know, this is your structural steel, maybe your piping and equipment. A lot of times, and you can reference NORSOC as well, but a lot of what we see is the zinc epoxyurethane system. You know, this is an inorganic zinc. You'll have a mid-coat epoxy sometimes with MIO or micaceous iron oxide for extra protection, and then a polyurethane top coat for color and UV stability. In some cases, we've seen offshore platforms, for example, go the route of polysiloxane. Certainly been a mixed bag there. I think, you know, we talked about the comment normalizing. In some ways, the, the pricing between polyurethanes and polysiloxane is normalizing a little bit, and so people are d discussing that. But in general, the polyurethane is the, the finished system to go with, and what the yards are used to and, and certainly what's kind of predominant. And in general, you know, you're talking about maybe 50 to 60% of the structural steel and, and items that are painted on, on a platform, for example, that take these systems. So again, we talked about the technical aspect, very practical component there when you're putting on these multi-layer systems. So some other areas to think about, you know, you've got your helideck area, your walkways. These are areas where you're going to have a heavy-duty epoxy. You're going to broadcast some sort of aggregate. Incidentally, these are pretty significant areas that get a lot of attention, especially once you're on the structure offshore and, you know, a lot of the safety and health and safety folks pay attention to that and, and really consider uh, that those are being properly maintained. And in some cases, depending upon how the design is, it could be a pretty significant part of the of the coatings. You know, in general, that's kind of the, the systems there. Then when you look at, you know, continuing on for an offshore platform, you've got linings for tank and vessels. Sometimes this is processed or hot water. Sometimes you've got hydrocarbons. You've got both the two coat system of the thin film epoxy, maybe four to six mils per coat. You've also got the one coat systems dependent upon, again, what is the inventory or chemistry you're, you're protecting against. Generally, we don't see anything too exotic there, but, you know, again, depends on the design. Yeah, I think you can look back to episodes like 10 through 14. <laughs> we have a series on immersion grade coatings and all the different factors that go into selecting a coating for that service. So it's very detailed and there is a four episode series that we did on that topic. Yep. There you go. A couple other areas to consider. You got the splash zone areas. These are generally your heavy duty epoxy. Most of the time they'll include glass flake in there. And in some cases, especially when you consider a maintenance scenario, you wanna have a coating that when the tide or water's down and you're trying to make repair, it can still cure while there's moisture prevalent. So really a key area, I mean, just consider a, a leg or something supporting these structures. You've got all kinds of vessels, boats, things coming in to dock right there is a load and unload. So you're getting a lot of, you're going to need a lot of abrasion resistance and who else knows what's floating in the, in the water there that'll, it'll ram into <laughs> it. So 
certainly a, a key area there. And, you know, in, the, in this case, you're talking about pretty thick coating systems, maybe 15 up to 30 mils of, of coating, usually in two coats. So depending upon what's there. And then you have your, your typical insulated piping and equipment, nothing super exotic here. Generally your epoxy phenolic systems, four to six mils per coat on this. Uh, what you do want to consider with this system, a lot of the, the guidance that you'll see with some manufacturers is you really have to watch your film thickness here. There's a tendency with some systems to get too, uh, too many mills with, with those products that they can lead to cracking. So you really want to pay attention in, in, in those areas that get insulated. And then the last part I'll cover is, is the, the subsea areas. So you, you've got a lot of different elements here, but you, know, you have epoxy coating systems. Usually this is two or three coats of epoxy systems with glass flight in some cases for different parts and components. And then you have insulated products. And really to, what you consider there is you're, in general, the, the deeper you drill, the deeper you go, you're getting these hot, hotter hydrocarbons out of the ground. The deeper you go, you've got colder seawater. Essentially, you have the idea that this hydrocarbon and, and what's in there, you know, can create this gumming effect and it'll slow down the flow. So that's where the insulated coating systems come in in some areas. And some of the general contractors have even come up with their own their own system. So these are heavily tested and evaluated and um, certainly want to do your due diligence there. But in general, that's that's what we're looking at is the main main systems for for offshore. Onshore is a little little less complex. You're looking at a lot of the the exterior coatings, two or three coat systems, sometimes just epoxy or thing. But that kind of covers the bulk of of what you'll see with the coating systems for upstream. That's a great summary there, Doug. And one of the things that you brought up that really does carry over, you know, we use a lot of the NORSOC system testing and the ABS and the ISO certifications that are in there. We carry those through into a lot of other industries as well because of the in-depth and complete scenarios that the NORSOC systems and these testing systems have put together. They just need to be so robust to be able to handle these environments that once you've done it, you've done the testing, you prove it, it's hard to say, well, there's something else I could use because it is a proven system. The requirements are so high that once you're complete, it's a great system and, and one that a lot of other parts of the industry tend to move towards as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And like we talked about, I, I think the offshore market is, is certainly in a lot of ways the litmus test because it's the most extreme yeah. environment and conditions you, you can have. And even though you know a lot of these standards and testing have been around a long time, you still see a lot of work and development and committees looking to to make it even better. So yeah. it's it's obviously drilling, you know, offshore drilling and onshore drilling will be around for a long time. So a lot of the time's worthwhile spent looking at technology and ways to improve it, especially from the coding perspective. Yeah. And when you think about it was NORSOC fundamentally got its start, North Sea offshore kind of, you know, you're looking at cold water environments, but it has been completely adopted into Mediterranean climates. The Gulf of Mexico uses NORSOC standards for almost everything they do. That shows just how complete and thoughtful the systems have been as they were put together. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I guess the difference is, is when you're first and you're right, everybody just adapts <laughs> what you're doing as opposed to uh, trying to better it. So thanks a lot, Doug, for coming on this week and giving us an overview of systems and different coatings that are used in oil and gas upstream. Thanks for having me. And I'm happy to report that since our last 
time that we met, I've had sustained power and electricity. So, oh yeah, so we can't even make fun of you for that. The world is righted. All when right. Get, when are you getting us some epoxy resin? <laughs> Not touching that one. All right. Well, for Doug and Paul, I'm Jack, and we'll see you guys next week. Take care. And so, for the Carbaline Tech Service Podcast, I'm Paul. And I'm Jack. Hey, we'd, we'd like, like to, to thank, thank you for your support. Who put the line in Carbaline? Who put the line in Carbaline? No matter where I go, they don't know what I mean. I say Carbaline.